0: If you have a Bible, we're in Acts 15 this morning, and um, it is really uh, incredible the way that as we walk through a book of the Bible... Uh, and we, there's no real way to time, obviously, what you go through in Scripture and what's going on in the world around you, um, and yet it is amazing the way that God sort of brings these things together so often, and, uh, and they, they relate to one another. And we see that especially with what's going on here in Acts. Uh, Acts 15 is, uh, is in many ways, it's like right in the middle of the book, and it's, uh, it deals with something that is so important in, in the entire book of Acts. Uh, a lot of scholars, theologians would say that what happens here, the Jerusalem Council, which is what we're looking at this morning, it really is like the biggest uh, event next to maybe Pentecost um, in the book of Acts. Um, I, I was talking to Pastor Matt this week about this and um, how when you're in Acts, uh, you, th- you, you have this sense that like there's these big things happening, and every time you start teaching on it, you like are wanting to say, "This is the biggest thing." <clears throat> I say it 's kind of like watching um, Planet Earth, if you 've ever seen the documentary planet Earth, and uh, which my kids and I were obsessed with those documentaries. We love them, and um, we, when you watch these things, like it seems like they 're constantly saying things that are like bigger and more hyperbolic than the things that they said before. And you're like, how can all these things be true, right? It'll be like the oceans one, and they'll say like the oceans, which contain more life than any other part of the planet. But then they'll do the forest one, and they'll say the forest, which contains more species of life than any other part of the planet. And then they'll say the deserts, and they'll say like the deserts, which cover more area and have more types of life than any other planet and then they'll say the the trees provide greater abundance of life than any other and you're like wait how can all these things be true i'm pretty sure they're just like making up different things that that's almost how it feels when you are going through acts and it's like this is the biggest thing that happens in the church And then two weeks later, this is probably one of the biggest things that happens in the church. And the fact is, Acts is just incredible because these amazing things are happening. And it's the fact that they're happening for the first time that it's probably such a big deal, right? The Holy Spirit comes upon people and indwells them in a way that never has before, that he never has before. And because of the power of that, uh, that being the first time this happens, it's a big deal, right? This here in Jerusalem Council is a point when the church starts to look a lot more like the way we think of church today. If you've ever been involved in church leadership today, you go, is this the first committee, right? Is this the first time that a meeting happened? A bunch of people sat down over Zoom and they were like, let's, Talk about this. Let's let's uh, let's motion and let's let's approve the motion. I'm still learning Robert's Rules of Order. I can't tell you how many people in our church council have given me copies of like the dummies version of Robert's Rules of Order because I'm so bad at it. But um, I'm pretty sure that that's what they had to follow in the Jerusalem Council. If you have, uh, we're gonna we're gonna read through it as we go and um, and hit on some of the things that happen here. Uh, we're we're gonna first see why they had to get together, why this big meeting happens. And so if you have a Bible. Well, you can open it to Acts chapter 15, and we're just gonna read a couple of verses at a time, and then we'll kind of walk through them and what they mean. Oh, wait, but before I get into it, I want to talk about this. I forgot about this, and I just saw my picture from my slide. When I was in uh, college, uh, actually when I was in high school, my very first job in high school was at a place called, it doesn't exist anymore, It's called. it was called Pacific Sunwear. It doesn't exist anymore. Now, what you see if you're in the mall and you walk through the mall is a place called pack sun, okay? And uh, that's upset me quite a bit. It's changed so much. It's not the way it used to be. But my first job was at Pacific Sunwear. And uh, working at a clothing store in the mall while you're in high school teaches you a lot about about trends and about the way that people try to look one of the things about high school that is so interesting is people are getting to this point in life really it happens in middle school as you are starting to kind of form your own identity apart from your family um, is you want to be different. You want to be unique, right? You want to be your own person. Um, I've noticed my kids in elementary school, there are exceptions to this, but for the most part, the worst thing that could possibly happen to you in elementary school is that you stand out from the other kids. You just don't want to, like, be different, look different, seem different in any way. Then you get into middle school and high school, and you become obsessed with this idea of being different, being distinctive, right? but then you start to realize after a while uh probably the 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 longer you're in uh, that life stage that there's all these groups of people who are trying to be different but at the same time being exactly the same as one another and that's like no nowhere is that depicted better than like the fashion especially in the world of high school when i was in high school one of the biggest things at the time was skaters there were a lot of skaters and this was like the beginning of like the skater fashion trend well this is at least in the 90s and it's all about having super baggy clothes baggy pants which it is pretty confusing even looking back on it it's confusing because why if this is all about being able to do tricks on a skateboard Would you have baggy or clothes? Well, you know what? If it makes you feel any better, eventually, by the time I was a youth pastor, it was all about skaters wearing the skinniest, tightest pants that you could possibly find. I did one time put on a pair of skinny jeans just for the kids in the youth group, and it was like the worst experience that any of us have ever had, and we've all like banished it from our minds. But... At that time, skaters wore super baggy pants. When I worked at Pacific Sunwear, we sold something that came as a result of this. This is like the creation of the, uh, like the splitting of the atom of the atomic bomb, where we will always ask ourselves, uh, was that a mistake, right? Well, in the same way, probably one of the undebated greatest mistakes ever is these things called Jinko jeans, okay? Jinko jeans, uh, Matt's, Matt's cheering in the back, he clearly wore these uh, uh, with his Oakley imitation Oakley sung glasses uh jinko jeans they people actually wore these this this is a real thing and these pants were so ridiculously huge that people were walking around in them and they like i mean they like they would like sway back and forth it definitely looked like you were wearing a huge skirt like if you look at the two people in denim here how similar is what they're wearing to like what we would think of as like maybe a a, like sort of a homeschool mom outfit right like the denim dress right look at that right that's the same outfit right but that was the coolest thing ever okay i I can make this joke now because like like everybody's a homeschool mom now right um so uh jinko jeans the worst invention ever came from Uh, the skater thing, but when I was in high school, there were packs of people that looked just like this, that were making the peace sign or whatever, uh, the hang 10 sign, and they were so cool because they were different even though they dressed exactly the same as all their friends, and everybody liked to think, "Oh, I'm I'm so different because I wear these things." Except for the fact that we sold them in the mall, right? There are cliques and groups, and everybody at this time starts associating with these different groups. Everything about your identity is like that group that you're in, right? If you're a skater, you're all about like being against authority, right? There's all these signs everywhere: "Don't skate, don't do this thing." Like, like get out of here, get off our property, right? As a pastor, like a big a big like moment. As a pastor is the first time you have to go chase skaters off your property right chase them off your steps right when you become the lead pastor it's the best because you get to just tell other pastors like hey or i'd like tell nancy hey nancy can you go can you go deal with that person i'm a little bit afraid of them and i don't want them to yell at me i want them to think i'm cool still right uh they're all about being against authority then there's the people who are like into athletics right they're like the athletes and everything everything in life is about like sports, right, like, like down, down to just like even wearing uniforms to school, everything's always about it, right? You have jocks, right? These are the jocks, right, in every high school. This is great, OK? You even have, and this is probably the greatest depiction of how this strange phenomenon works, you have the goth kids, OK? Now, the thing about the goth kids is this is all about being anti-everything, right? Like we are not at all into the things that society's into and yet when everyone bands together in their social group as the goth kids you're like but wait a second you all seem to be exactly like one another in fact you have stores that are owned by like people that in no way reflect your values who make tons of money because you want to look this specific way be the specific way and for all of you adults who are watching this and going like oh my gosh i can't believe how young people dress okay This is what you all looked like, all right? This is what you all looked like, okay? This is probably the nicer and more tame wedding photo from the 70s that I found. I've been to so many homes where this picture is hanging over the fireplace and it's like, man, oh man. Uh, Okay, the point of this, As we've been in Acts and as we've been talking about God's people in the church, one of the biggest things that we have had to deal with is this idea of God telling his people, I want you to remain distinct, but you're going to do it together as a group of people. So the world's going to look at you and they're going to go, that group of people, oh, they're very different from all the rest of us, but they're the same as each other, and there's a reason for it. Uh, they're, not, they're, not, they're not doing it because uh, they're against authority. They're not doing it because they're into athletics. They're not doing it because they're into these uh, you know, new ways of thinking. They're doing it because of this God and because that's who dictates everything about them. That's why they were given the law. That's why they were given everything that they were given as, as people, the Israelites. I want you to be different. But what's happening in Acts is that's starting to change, and as that's changing... As we know and as we've seen, change is always hard, always, and the people are dealing with it. And and it finally comes to a head, and they have to deal with it on an official level here in Acts 15. So if we read the first couple verses, here's what they say. Acts 15, verses 1 and 2 say, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. This is in, in Antioch. You are circumcised, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And so we read that they went on and passed through some other places telling people what was happening, and then in verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem... They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared uh, all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. We're going to stop right there. So, uh, the problem here is that some, um, some people have come into the church. They're referred to as Judaizers, and, or in this case, it's also some Pharisees that we'll see in Jerusalem when they start to bring the case about there. And they've come into the church in Antioch, this church that is really the first major uh, brand-new group of Christians, uh, both Jew and Gentile, Uh, to begin. And Paul and Barnabas are heavily invested in this group, and these guys have come in and they've said to them, listen, it's great that you're all uh, following Jesus. He's the Messiah. That's fine. We agree with everything you're saying, but we just want to remind you guys that uh, if you really want to fully be a part of God's people, then you have to be circumcised. Now, this comes from God's covenant with his people in the Old Testament, and God explaining that circumcision is sort of a part of that covenant in, in, in a symbolic form. You read about it in Genesis 17 where God's talking to Abraham. He's already come to Abraham earlier in Genesis. He's told him, I'm going to give you a child. I'm going to make you the father of many nations, of different people. And, and as I do that, um, uh, you're going to uh, you're gonna make my name known to the world. Later on, after, uh, after Abraham finally and his wife become pregnant with this child, God comes to him. And and this happens. We read in Genesis 17, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. There's a there's a reason um, that this uh, this is God's symbol for the covenant, and there's a, well there's several different reasons for it. Uh, one of them is uh, it's a it's a generational way of ensuring that the next generation is going to follow. So basically, what happens is they would they would circumcise a child on the eighth day. And, uh, and when they do that, that's sort of like w- what we do when we have like a baby dedication. Basically, it's parents saying before everyone, we will raise them up uh, in the Lord, for the Lord. So, I mean, obviously the child isn't uh, in charge of what's happening to them when they're eight days old. And I guarantee you, if they've ever been uh, present for a circumcision, you know if the baby was in charge, they would not be doing this. Uh, but it's really a reflection of the parents saying, we're going to pass on this covenant and we will raise this child as ours. Now, so that child is actually going to show their commitment to the covenant by deciding whether they will circumcise their children or not, and they'll raise them up in that way. So, so uh, it's, first of all, a way of making the covenant carry on generation after generation because God knew that's how things are dropped. That's how things are forgotten. That's how we get past things. Right? I can say I'm going to follow Jesus for, for every day for the rest of my life. When I'm baptized, I'm saying I am going to promise to follow him and to be faithful to him for the rest of my life. And I can do that, but that doesn't ensure that my children will do that, that the further generations will do that. And so what I'm saying um, as I parent them is I'm saying, but I intend for that to not just be about me. I want them to have this as well, because I don't see following Jesus as just a personal individual choice that only makes sense for me, but may not make sense for my children and my family, right? I want to see future generations holding on to this, because if God's people followed him and kept his covenant, but then the next generation didn't. It's over. It dies, and we see that happen in the Old Testament a lot. So first, the circumcision was a way of saying we're going to carry this thing on to the next generation. Uh, something else that it did that was that was important was it was symbolic, and for, because of that reason, you you hear circumcision brought up in the Bible again and again. Circumcision of our hearts, circumcision of our mind. Um, this is a metaphorical term, and 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 what it involves is it's a it's a painful removing of. part of yourself for the sake of being cleansed and being clean and for the sake of God. The idea being that there's a part of me uh, that is impure, and if I'm going to devote myself to God, I have to be willing to separate myself from that in order to be with Him. And so when the Bible talks about circumcising your hearts for the Lord, it's saying we have these conflicting desires in our hearts, these things that we want, these things that we, that we are passionate about and that we desire, but not all of those things are good. And so we must be a people with a circumcised heart. We must be a people who say, and Christians are people, today we are people who say, you may want all of those things in your heart, but not all of those things are good. Any one of those things can become an idol to you, and so the only way to truly live for God is to allow your heart to be sort of surgically worked on and to have the impure parts taken away, taken out. We don't believe as Christians that we are simply meant to follow our hearts, our desires, our our passions, and that by simply doing that, we will be fulfilled and we will live as God wants us to live. This is absolutely opposite of the way that our culture tends to think about life, right? In a world in which uh, the greatest thing you can do in life is to live out unhindered, your heart, your passion, your desire to know who you are and to live that out without anything getting in the way of it. In fact, the people that we admire, that we respect, that we look up to the most in, the, in these times are people who actually get rid of, 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 of anything in the way of them pursuing what? Their heart, their desire, right? Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us that that we actually have to be… I mean, first of all, if you know anything about your heart, you know that the desires that your heart has are not in any way lined up with each other, right? We constantly want things that fight against each other, right? There are people that want money, and they want happiness, and they want love, and they want children, and uh, I guarantee you that not all four of those things will go together the way that you think they will. So, your heart doesn't… No, it isn't a thing that like knows that's ordered and 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 structured so the bible tells us that in order to follow god we have to be ready to separate ourselves from the parts of us that are sinful that are impure this is what circumcision symbolized and so god said this is the way that you will show that you're a part of my covenant group of people that you're a part of my people through circumcision. This was a huge thing for them. This was a big part of their identity. It's, a, it's, it's, it's incorporated in with the law of Moses, the idea being, uh, listen, you guys can follow Jesus, is what these Pharisees and these Judaizers are saying. You can trust in him as the Messiah, uh, but uh, if you aren't willing to live by the laws of Moses, if you're not willing to be circumcised, which is uh, so, so a, a Gentile, a person who's not born Jewish, can become a Jew uh, by simply uh, following the Mosaic Law and being circumcised, right? In fact, what it says in the Old Testament is really clear. It says, listen, uh, anybody in your household, your servants, your slaves, outside people can come in but they must be circumcised, they must be made like you, okay? So this is God's way of saying it doesn't matter who you are when you're born, it doesn't matter what group of people you're born into, it doesn't matter what your background or your story is, anybody can become a part of my people if you just do this thing and therefore irreversibly show that you're my people, Circumcision was a big deal for the identity of God's people. And uh, it, it's, it's something that these Judaizers have come up and said. Uh, basically, this is what happens uh, in Acts in all sorts of little ways, and we've already seen it with the food that they eat, with all, a lot of the other traditions and customs they have. This is where the grace of Jesus and this idea of including all people now is running up against this idea of but aren't god's people the jewish people aren't they the only people for god do you have to become jewish in order to become christian up until now you've had to and that's what they're deciding and so uh, we read on here um, in acts 15 verses 6 through 8 the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter Because this is such a big issue, and Antioch is such a big church, they say, we're going to handle this the right way. We're going to go to Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas decide. We're going to bring this to the, to the elders, the, the pillars, the, the founders of the early church, the men in Jerusalem, Peter, James, the apostles, and we're going to sit down, and we're going to talk about it, and we're going to seek God's guidance on it. And whatever they decide is ultimately going to be this is God's direction for the church. This, is me- this meeting is a huge deal. And one of the reasons why it means a lot for us is because we tend to think of everything that happens in Acts as just God sort of beamed it down into people's brains, you know? Listen, if God wants something to happen, it's going to happen. If he wants Saul to be a Christian, he's going to become a Christian. If he wants those people to speak in those languages, they're just going to do it. If he wants this person to go speak to this person, he's basically going to almost push them with his Holy Spirit to do it. It's almost like they're just sort of there playing these roles. But what we see here in Acts 15 is different from that we see this group of leaders saying, uh, it isn't clear to us what we should do. It isn't clear. It's complicated. It's difficult. We see how the law of Moses matters. In fact, one of the biggest things that attracted people to the Jewish faith was simply Moses. He was such a well-known and beloved leader, he was such an admired leader by other cultures, other nations, other groups of people, that one of the big, that the biggest thing, arguably, that attracted people to the Jewish faith was Moses. So the law of Moses is a big deal. And didn't God give us that law? But at the same time, isn't it by grace that we're saved through faith? And it seems as though this circumcision thing isn't actually happening because of some inward change, in, 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 like the things that Jesus talked about. You know, It was this idea that your outward actions uh, need to be the result of some inward change, and there needs to be a connection between those two things. Something that we do outwardly, that anybody can do outwardly, it seems weird that, that, that we would still be required to do this thing that means so much just by what the outward appearance is. So they go to Jerusalem and they talk about it. Uh, they present their case to the leaders of the church. And what we read about is the response of Peter and James the two biggest uh, names in the early church, especially in Jerusalem. Peter, the, 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 you know, the beloved disciple, the rock on which Jesus built the church, and James, his brother, Jesus' brother. Someone who is considered a huge, uh, significant force in the church, not because anyone gave him a title even, but just because of the way he lived and because of the kind of uh, passion that he had and faith in Jesus. And so... Um, so as, as, as it says, the apostles, the elders uh, begin to debate. After they had done that, Peter gets up and he says this to them. And the last thing that he says here in the verses we looked at is he says, and he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed our hearts, their hearts by faith. Peter is reminding them. He's like, you guys remember this whole thing that happened with Cornelius and me? You remember that whole thing about dietary laws and how God changed that? Do you remember that even though it seemed like that's not what God would want, how did he show us that this is what he wanted. The Holy Spirit came upon these people. And like we've seen in Acts, the the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the idea of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, where people perform miraculous signs and wonders, where they speak in different languages and tongues, that happens as a way of God showing, see, I want these people to be my people. So it usually happens in situations where there's going to be a lot of doubt, right? How do we know these apostles who follow this Jesus guy that was killed, how do we know that they mean anything, that they're not crazy, right? The Holy Spirit fills them, they do miraculous things. How do we know that these Gentiles, just because Peter says he had a dream about a sheet and some food, how do we know that that means that these guys are really God's people now? Well, because he indwelt them with the Holy Spirit. We can't deny that. We saw proof, evidence that God is in this. And so he points this out, and he says, and by doing that, hasn't God made it clear that he has made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith? This word distinction, this is the first thing I was talking about with our clothing styles and the things that we do. This is a part of their identity. In fact, this is their identity as Jewish people. We've talked about this again and again. Be distinct whatever the cost. This is what God calls the Jewish people to do we uh, th- this is in a sense their prime directive. I keep going back to this phrase uh, which is which uh, uh, is uh, is a phrase from Star Trek and uh, and if you 're a Star trek nerd you're going to love this part of the sermon i'll tell you right now uh, I had some conversations with people this week about the prime directive. I just think that phrase basically sums up the fact that as God sent his people into the promised land he said, I want to give you an instruction, and this instruction is really going to be the heart behind all of these laws and rules and everything that I give you, and it is this. I want you to be very different from all these other nations and groups of people. In fact, we, we ask ourselves, like, you know, why did God tell them to, to, to kill so many people when they would go into these lands, to not keep even alive animals, to not intermarry with people of different religions and faiths and cultures. And the reason is always, it always goes back to this. God saying to his people, I want you to be distinct whatever the cost. This is the prime directive of the Jewish people. The prime directive, uh, like I said, it's a phrase from Star Trek. Uh, if you're familiar with Star Trek, you know the prime directive. Uh, I looked it up and uh, this is the Prime Directive, okay? This is my favorite Star Trek captain, so I'm going to use him, Captain Picard. Uh, The Prime Directive is this. Starfleet personnel and spacecraft are prohibited from interfering in the normal development of any society. Any Starfleet vessel or crew member is expendable to prevent violation of this rule. Basically the prime directive is this. They go around, they're there is it's a scientific mission, okay? It's a scientific mission. They're going around, traveling around the universe. They're they're discovering things and interacting with these different Civilizations, but if a civilization has not yet achieved a certain point, and you know, for those of you who care about the details, it's warp drive. If they have not obtained the capacity for warp drive, as we all know, uh, then you can't interfere with the development of that society. Okay, you have to. Th- so this was like uh, also an excuse for them to put on cool costumes and go in and dress up like the native people and pretend, you know, like they were native people too, but they weren't really. They were Starfleet officers, and it was very exciting. I'm sure. Uh, so the Prime Directive is called that because they say we as, th- this is like when you watch Planet Earth or National Geographic and you're like, please just, that that one little elephant that, that just got turned away from his family and he's wandering out into emptiness and you're panning out to show that he's about to like completely die the slowest death ever because he just got turned around in a, in a sandstorm and he's walking the opposite direction from his whole pack. Please, whoever's filming this, just go and hug that little elephant and give him some water and turn him around and point him back to his family. But we don't do that, right? We say, we say the job of scientists is to observe. It's not to interfere with what's going on, right? Well, that's what the prime directive is for Starfleet personnel, right? The prime directive for God's people, the Jews, comes out of Joshua And it's this, Uh, it's what he tells them before they go in the promised land. He says, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, and you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success god tells his people very simply he says you're going to go in this land do this thing the law and if you do it you will prosper because, one, there is a natural wisdom to God's law. If you do God's, what God says, if you, and God's law reflected his heart. It told us all these things about who God was, right? So if you, if you do these things and live this way, it'll naturally be wiser and better for you. But on top of that, God's going to protect you. He will supernaturally keep you safe. He will protect you from your enemies. And there were a lot of enemies at this time. And what we see happen is exactly this thing play out. There are generations that say, not going to follow. God's law. We don't care about it anymore. They lose sight of how important it is. They stop being distinct. And what happens is, apart from them just falling into the foolishness that comes from not having God's wisdom, they're conquered by enemies. They're overtaken by enemies. And ultimately, that's what leads to God's people being scattered and dispersed until Jesus comes. This is the prime directive. And yet Peter says this, and it matters a lot. He says, he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. This is a big deal. Up until now, if I am one of God's people, then what I think every day when I wake up and I get out of bed is I think, what am I supposed to do in life? Whatever I do, what matters is that I am different from the people in these outside cultures, these other groups, that I be distinct. One of the things that I have learned so much going through Acts this time around is that my assumption about God's people, the, the Jewish people, were, was that they were the bad guys in the story. The idea is, you know, they're the ones that that wanted to crucify Jesus, right? It seems like every time that there's an interaction with Pharisees, Jewish leaders, they're, they're these legalistic people who don't care about anything or anyone, and they're the bad guys, right? What you see, though, especially in Acts, is that God's people were absolutely dedicated to being obedient to God. And that meant be different from everyone else. And so, of course, they didn't learn languages. Of course, the, uh, of the places where they lived, they were new, know, known as that culture, that group that did their own thing. And they actually looked down on Gentiles, or they looked down on Greek-speaking Jews, people who said, well, I'm Jewish, but I've just I've let myself become like society. You know, it's, it's just it's what I've needed to do. They've learned the languages. They've done those things. So, so it's easy to judge God's people, the Jews, for for living this way, but this was their prime directive. And so if, if, if you're killing yourself, doing everything that you can to just be distinct in the way that you live from those non-Jewish people, and then God comes to you and he says, comes to Peter, comes to these guys in the early church and makes it very clear to them, there is no distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles. That statement changes everything about the way that they view God and what it means to follow him. Now, the goal is to get this gospel to all of the people and to not focus solely on being different for the sake of being different. Because it was important that they be different And a lot of their law, a lot of their traditions, a lot of these things in the Mosaic Law, people would ask today, why don't we follow most of what's in the Mosaic Law? Why do we only follow parts of it, right? Well, because of ultimately what gets decided here in the Jerusalem Council. And the first thing that's decided is there is not a distinction between Jews and Gentiles, which means if they're not circumcised and that makes them not Jewish, they're still God's children, they're still God's people. There isn't any difference in God's mind, and He doesn't have favorite children and less favorite children. He goes on then and says this, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through grace of our Lord Jesus just as they will. So Peter's going on, he's saying, listen, if there's no distinction, if Jewish people aren't better than Gentiles, then why are you making them follow the Mosaic law in order to be Jewish? Now, uh, a Jewish person would say to this, Well, because we love the law, because it's great, because it gives us all these amazing things and wisdom. But what Peter's saying is, he's saying, Guys, I know this law. I know you. I know your history. I'm one of you. And don't you agree that when we talk about the law, that when we all actually talk about what it's like to be a Jewish person and trying to follow God, that we seem to feel more like it is a burden that we have to bear? Then that it 's this amazing, wonderful thing, right have you ever have you ever talked have you ever like uh, talked to someone about the things God wants for us, about uh, the idea of you know living well for God, and it 's almost like there are these sort of uh, you know there 's the facade of oh, this is so good, this is so great but then uh, then when maybe there 's this point in your life where you feel like you can be really transparent, and honest, and you say it just feels like a burden to me. It feels like a bunch of rules. It feels like a weight. It feels like a constant sort of shameful, maybe even guilt-driven thing. Why would Peter say that about the law? Why would he say that it's a burden? Because this is his point to them. In this council in Jerusalem, Peter's saying, guys, let's be honest. The law was a burden to us, and what the law was meant to do was to point us to this, which is the fact that we need God's grace. None of you, says Peter, were ever saved, were ever made righteous because of it. So, if it's not about being different and distinct, then it must be because by doing the law, I prove something. And Peter's saying, but... How many of your friends can actually follow the law? How many of you can actually follow the law? Peter himself is saying, these leaders of the church, these apostles that people look up to as like perfect people, I'm sure, they themselves are the ones that are saying, fine, we'll be the first to say it. Uh, And they're not the first to say it, but they say, the law is a burden to me. I don't just happily and easily and naturally do all of these things. I blow it, I mess up, and when I care too much about the law, it is like a weight upon me. He says, isn't it true that throughout all of the history of being God's people that we've needed his grace anyway? If you look at the Israelites, if you look at any, part, any person, Abraham, Moses, any of the people that we look to in the Bible and we say they're examples of people with great faith, of God's people, uh, none of them are perfect. In fact, they make huge mistakes. God's people need His grace. There is no way that we, through just following the law, Are going to be able to accomplish anything other than being burdened and feeling guilty in fact the harder that we try to follow the law the more it seems to make us aware of how much we fall short of following it it's as though the law itself only really shows us at the end of the day that we need god's grace which is ultimately the purpose of the law. It was to make God's people distinct, but also to point people to the fact that, that this God, when we see what real holiness and perfection is, what he requires of somebody who is really going to bear his image and bear his name, that really, we need his grace because there's no way that we can do it. Basically, all of us at some point approach God on our knees and say, God, God, I'm not one of the ones that can do this, but I still want to be your child. I still want to be one of your people. Is there any way that you can just, out of your grace, out of your mercy, be my father anyway? And God says, yes, there is. I'll make a way. I'll make a way for my grace to be the thing that saves you because this law is not something that you can ultimately do. A lot of us think of the law, a lot lot of us um, need to hear that truth. That simple truth that the law is ultimately a burden to God's people that points them to the need for God's grace because it is so easy, and I see this as a parent, it is so easy, in wanting for my children to know who God is, to only teach them that through rules, through laws, through expectations, through what we'd call sort of behavior modification, right? If you act this way, God will love you. He'll be happy. If you are this way, God will love you and he will be happy. And we always give a disclaimer, oh, you know, but you're not perfect and that's okay too. But uh, it's so easy if that's the only way that we understand who God is, is through his laws and expectations of us, then ultimately uh, we, we kind of either become these sort of delusional, uh, legalistic people. We think we're better than we are, right? If if your only hope is in perfectly following this, and you can't do it because none of us can, then you either just kind of start to live in this fake world where you are actually perfect, you know? Maybe you do what the Pharisees did. You change the laws to where they reflect the way you behave, or you just, everybody, you know, you begin to be a hypocrite, or you're the, you're the sinner that's on their knees saying, God, I'm groveling before you because it makes me realize I can't possibly do any of these things. I can't do all these things. Either way, we need him. He goes on. Uh, we read in Acts 15, 12 through 14. And all the assembly fell silent says, and then they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. So this is now James. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them... To abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For, for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. What James does here is he says to them, we should write a letter, which they ultimately do. We should send it to this church in Antioch, to these Gentiles, and we should make it clear to them that there are still things in what God requires of his people that he wants us to do because there's a, there's a purpose and a function behind them. And, and, and these ones that he explains, things like uh, abstaining from things polluted by idols, sexual immorality, what has been strangled, all of these have to do with uh, real, actual spiritual issues that people deal with in their hearts. Even the food that's been strangled, there's a connection and why this is so important. It basically has to do with people being able to get food uh, more easily and more cheaply, but it's food that has been desecrated in various different ways by idol worship or by the way that these animals have been killed. And he says, uh, you're, you're choosing to, for the sake of saving some money or getting meat more easily, uh, to, to do something that has basically been a Part of a ritual for some other God. But he separates it out. He basically says, listen, let's make it clear to these guys. We need to make it clear to them that there are things in the Mosaic law that have a real, genuine root spiritually. And that what we're not saying to them is it doesn't matter how you live and what you do. But what we should do is free them up from the things that are more tradition for the sake of tradition. Ultimately, what he says is this. He says, we will no longer, as a church, we will no longer, as a people, have tradition for the sake of tradition. We will no longer do things just because they make us different. Now, this ultimately ends up being absolutely, without a doubt, the hardest shift and change for the Jewish people. This becomes the most difficult thing for them because they go, okay, wait a second, but, but these traditions, these uh, things that we've done, like circumcision, these have been a part of our history for so long that it's very scary for us to think about moving forward without them. In fact, being a part of God's people now means losing so many things that are familiar to us. It is no longer going to be familiar to be one of God's people. One of the benefits of being a religious person in the church is that it's all familiar to us. We come to church every Sunday and we sing songs that are familiar to us. We do things that are familiar to us. The way that we do church, the way that we talk in church, the way that we expect church to be is familiar to us and therefore comfortable to us. We often wonder, why is it that other people don't come here? Why don't they see how good all of this is? And it's often because we just don't understand that these things that are familiar to us are completely foreign and unfamiliar to other people. I've talked to people who have become Christians and have sort of assimilated into church life and culture. And it's interesting to hear their observations, to see the things that they say um, as sort of like, uh, why, why would you do that? Why would you do this? I don't see it anywhere in the Bible. Oh, no, I know, but it's, a, it's sort of a tradition. It's something that we do. And there's so many ways that we do it. I was looking at uh, memes this morning, uh, worship leader memes. I don't know why, but I was. And there was one, it was this guy that had like a V-neck shirt and it went all the way down like to his belly button. And it said, worship leaders saying, uh, rid your mind of all distractions or something. And it was like, it was a joke on the fact that like a worship leader's like, let's just remove all distractions and I'm gonna put on the weirdest shirt and do the craziest stuff ever to get as much attention as I can, right? That's a great example of something that like if you do that long enough, if the church culture becomes a certain way and we get used to it, right? Then we go, uh, then we go." well, it's gonna be funny if you guys get up to lead and you have like choir robes on after this because you're like, oh, I'm just really self-conscious about what I'm wearing. No, I, I they're fine. Um, but we do these things and if you do them long enough, Long enough and we get used to them long enough, they become traditions and they become things that are normal to us. But just because we, we have something that's familiar, it doesn't mean that it's something that has ultimately got spiritual roots to it, that, that there's a, a purpose behind it spiritually. And this is the hardest thing for God's people to ultimately let go of. You know, ultimately, what we see here, I, I was saying that in Acts, it's been incredible to see how uh, what we've gone through in, in this book has lined up with what's been going on in our world right now. You know, we're in this pandemic, and um, as, as we've come out of like wave after wave of quarantine restriction, we're, we're in a new wave of these things now, it seems. Uh, the question is always the same for church, in the church, right? Uh, which is like, so, so how do we worship? How do we get together? What do we do, right? We live in a state where we have restrictions on how we can worship. And, uh, and we talk to friends and people in neighboring states that some have restrictions that are more rigid than ours, some have restrictions that are much looser than ours, some have none at all, right? And as we go through a time like that, we basically say we don't know exactly what it is that we should do. Just like these apostles didn't know exactly what it was to do. You see, we we live in an age in which, I don't know if it's different now than it used to be or if everybody expected it this way, but uh, the, the age in which we live now, we associate conviction with like impulsive action. The idea being, if you really believe something, if God is really driving you something, if you really know the truth of God, and if you really have conviction and passion for what he wants, you won't have to stop and think about things too long, right? You won't have to deliberate things. You won't have to sit down with a group and discuss those things, right? That's for people who maybe don't have conviction in what they do. Because of the conviction I have, the moment I see this thing on Facebook, I forward that baby be right along, right? Because that's conviction, right? It's only the person who doesn't know what God wants for them who has to stop and think about that, right? And yet that's not what we see here. What we see here is we see the actual leaders of the church saying, we don't know what to do yet. Why? Because we have these conflicting things. We have the call to reach the Gentiles, but we have this law in Moses that God has told us is important. We don't know what to do. And, and you know what we need more than anything is we need God's wisdom and the Spirit. And if you want the Spirit, if you want God's wisdom to be a part of your decision-making, then you generally need to stop and ask for it. You stop and you say, God, would you give us some direction? Would you speak to us? This last week, we were meeting as a, as a council. We were talking about, about church and about meeting in church and about, you know, uh, there, there are churches that are wrestling, very seriously wrestling, as we should, with the question of at what point do we, do we allow uh, authorities, governing authorities, to dictate the way we worship, right, uh, but, but on the other hand, uh, you know, because ultimately God tells us to gather together and worship. On the other hand, we're a witness to people. We have certain amount of sort of uh, capital and credibility with the people around us. And we want to be careful with those things because we are called to reach those very same people, right? These are complicated things. These are difficult things. And so I have talked to so many pastors who are getting together with people a lot more these days and asking questions and praying and seeking God's wisdom and his advice on on what it is, his direction on what it is that we should do. It is a mistake to think that uh, that, that oftentimes that, that things are, are so simple and so easy that we should just follow our own instincts, our own impulse, right? One of, one of the worst things that can happen is for a person to make the mistake of thinking, God has made me a good enough Christian that now I'm just going to be me. The things that I love are the things God loves. The things I get upset about are the things God is upset about, right? How do I know that? Because I've been a Christian for so long. I've been a part of this thing for so long. Or because I'm a leader, because I'm involved. These men are the leaders of the church, And rather than Paul and Barnabas say, you know what, we need to just decide this, and we're going to tell you guys they go to Jerusalem. And how do the leaders communicate this to them? They write a letter, and they send it with them. Why? Because the problem started to begin with, with people coming and lying and saying, we're from Jerusalem, don't worry, they sent us. No, don't don't ask them. They sent us, and we're here to tell you this thing. So so they say in their council. first of all, we didn't send these guys, and second of all, but we need to send you guys with a letter that we all sign that says, here is What we believe God wants for us, the church, and that is a very big deal. Ultimately, What God seems to be doing, well, what he is doing, is he is saying to his people, I'm going to give you these leaders, I'm going to appoint these leaders, and they they will not be, uh, it's so similar to what you see in the Old Testament even, they won't be based on uh, their physical abilities, by their impressive stature, by their incredibly good looks, uh, they will be leaders based upon their maturity and their faith in me. And, and because of their faith in me, they will seek me and my direction and my leading. And so you can know that as they lead you, that they're seeking me. This is why, as we seek leadership of our church, we look to people who are spiritually leaders. People that we know can do that. One of the things that, um, as, as Pastor Matt, as me, as, as, as all of us pastors have met with people in the church over the past several months to talk about all of what's going on, to talk about changes we've had in our own church, one of the things that comes up the most is people will, will often make the observation, like, isn't it the job of the leaders of the church to give the people what they want? We, we've had people ask us that so much, not in a not in an angry way, but just kind of like, you know, I mean, that's right, how it works, right? And we, we kind of had to explain to people. No, that's not how it works. The, the idea of it is that the leaders of the church discern what God wants and then bring that to the people and say, this is the thing that God wants for us. How do we do this thing, right? That's how God is setting it up for his people, Uh, I said before, change is hard, and uh, one of the things that we know about it in the church, and we see so much change happening here in Acts, is that the way to, to deal with it, The way to to work through change that's happening as it's happening, uncertain times, uncertain situations, times when things are being questioned and talked about and, and, and looked at that maybe haven't even been evaluated in a long time, the way to ultimately endure that thing is to simply remain through it that like a stone that is in a, a river, that is, as the water passes over it again and again, it smooths the edges away, this is ultimately uh, us sort of remaining in Christ in the church, is to say that that even when it's difficult, even when we are figuring out these big things that seem so, uh, so new and scary, that ultimately saying, I choose to remain, uh, is the way that we deal with change. That's a hard thing for many of us, uh, but I think it's what God calls us to do. As we continue to worship this morning, as we close, I think the biggest takeaway that each and every one of us individually can have in this is simply this. Do we do the things that we do because they're comfortable, because they're familiar, uh, do we do those things because um, we, uh, we find them, um, the things themselves, to be comforting? Or are we seeking God and his Spirit in how it is that we're trying to live? Most people that I talk with who are believers confess that they don't spend much time asking God what he thinks, asking the Spirit where it is that we ought to go, what it is that our heart ought to desire, that we're much more inclined even when we get on our knees in prayer to ask God for the things that we want rather than to ask him to change our hearts. The greatest thing that we can do as a church, that we can do as a people in a time of a lot of uncertainty, is to spend more time asking God to lead us and guide us. As we do that, I think a lot of the fear and the uncertainty will fade away because I think a lot of the fear and uncertainty comes from us knowing somewhere deep down inside we're trying to figure all this out ourselves. And we have this feeling that God's up there looking at us saying, if you get this wrong, you're in trouble. What God is ultimately up there saying to us is, invite me in, ask me into this, and I will lead you. You can trust me in that. Let's pray. Father, um, it is so encouraging to see these men of such great faith, of such conviction, men that you have used and have filled with your Holy Spirit, to see them trying to figure things out amongst each other, Lord. These are men who do not have all the answers, who do not know exactly what the right way is forward, Lord. But Father, these are... These are men who spend more time reminding people and themselves of the things that you have said rather than expecting new things to be said, Lord. God, would you help us to be, to be humble, Lord? Would you help uh, us leaders in the church um, to not think that you've given us the positions that we have so that we can simply uh, be ourselves and be in control, but that you've given us these positions because you want us to be people who seek you, that you can use. Lord, would you help each and every person in our church, in our body, to spend more time asking you for guidance from your spirit, Lord, to reveal the things in our heart that must be let go as we seek to circumcise our own hearts, Lord, and minds, as you tell us in your word, God. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.